Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I am your co-host with Marnie Breaker. So today we have a very special episode, and I have to say, I wish I could have been on this interview, but this interview is between Marnie and Neil Strauss, where they have a very candid and uncensored discussion about his journey through sex addiction recovery. Now, Neil is a New York Times bestselling author, and he wrote the book, The Truth, where he explores with humor and humility and honesty, his lessons that he learned in treatment and in recovery. This conversation is really candid and direct, and you can tell that Neil has really done his work, and it's really awesome that he's willing to share his journey so personally. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And if you're in recovery, really listen to Neil's voice and what he says. You can tell he was willing to really dig in and explore the parts of himself that um, sometimes are difficult to look at. Sometimes there's parts of ourselves that we don't want to see. But you can tell that Neil really dug in and did his work. So his conversation is very rich. I'm really hoping we can do a part two because I have a lot of questions for Neil. So I hope that happens. But before we start, if you are enjoying the Helping Couples Heal podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or think about leaving us a review. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure. And it helps people out there who are struggling with this find us and get support. And if you're looking for more support, think about joining our Facebook group. You can just go to Facebook and type in helping couples heal, click join, agree to the group rules and get a little extra support there as well. And also sign up for our newsletter. We are sending out helpful information to you when we release new episodes, we'll let you know. And it's a great way to stay connected. Okay. Let's go ahead and start this episode. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I am doing an interview without my partner and friend, Dwayne Osterland. So I'm very excited about the guests that we'll be speaking to today. This is actually, um, I'm excited. We have been talking about doing this episode now to do this interview for about, I would say, a year since I've been trying to get this particular guest on the podcast. He is busier than anyone I know, but because of the the very sad circumstances of the pandemic, his schedule has quieted down a bit and we were able to schedule. So um, I don't want to leave you in the lurch as to who this special guest is. So I'm excited to introduce my friend, Neil Strauss, who is an award-winning New York Times bestselling author. He was a cultural reporter and columnist at the New York Times for a decade and has been a contributing editor at Rolling Stone for over 20 years. Neil has been running workshops focused on healing trauma, especially with men for the last nine years. And Neil, before I introduce you, I just want to share with the audience how we met, because I think it's a pretty fun story. And this podcast always needs a little bit of levity because we're really talking about trauma, which is a pretty heavy issue. So I like to share when I can something, something fun. So I went to an event hosted by a treatment facility. It was a lunch, maybe four years ago, I think, four years ago, five years ago. And you know, I go to these networking events a lot. And while I always enjoy them, it's always other therapists. I'm always talking to other therapists who are either in private practice or working in outpatient settings or in inpatient settings. So anyway, that particular day, 
there was a gentleman sitting to my right. And when I turned to him, I said, where do you work? And he said, I think he said, I think he told me Rolling Stone. And I, I was confused. Anyway, I found out that he was a writer. And that was really exciting because for me, I've actually always wanted to be a writer myself. I think I've told you that, Neil, that I, I moved to LA to become a writer you know, over 20 years ago. And we ended up talking through the whole lunch and it was such a wonderful conversation and it was interesting. And then we developed a friendship after that, which was fantastic. So what came out of what I thought would be another networking, you know, therapist lunch ended up really being the start of a nice friendship and, and actually some work collaboration as well. Yeah. So um, in any event, that's Neil. That's how we met. And I'm really glad to have you here today. Great. It's good to have you here too. I was, my mind was going to, I had like another funny probably not appropriate for the podcast, like story that happened there as well. Oh, at the lunch? Yes. Okay. You'll remind me at another time then. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, okay. So the reason that I had Neil come on the podcast is because when we became friends, he told me that he had written a book called The Truth. I think it's actually The Truth, an uncomfortable book about relationships. Is that the title, Neil? That's it. Yep. Okay. And I was so excited to read it and I did. And it, wow, it was definitely an uncomfortable book uh, about relationships. And Neil has a really, really interesting, fascinating story about his journey um, in terms of his own sexuality, his, his, I don't even know how to say this again. What would you say, Neil? How would you say it? Yeah, but you can say whatever words you want. I mean, I would say intimacy disorder, right? <laughs> There's That's perfect. Yes. Neil has had his own journey with, with intimacy disorder. And really, really what I want to say is that he put in the work to heal. I mean, he really put in the work. And I want to have him share his story with you because it involved a betrayal of his most intimate partner and how they healed through that relationship and came out the other side of betrayal. I think that the, the greatest question I get from clients on a regular basis is, should I even have hope? Is this possible? It seems hopeless. It seems like there's nothing that he can do. Even when he's sober and he's passed his polygraph exams and he honors my boundaries, I still feel like I can't trust. How can I do that? And what better way to offer hope, in my opinion, than to have somebody who can share their own journey of hope? And I've been in a lot of groups during the healing process with other men and have seen the different variations of healing and, and recovery and lack thereof. Because it seems to me that there are almost two sides to it. One is the partner willing to do the work. Because mm -hmm. when someone says, well, my partner cheated, they promised never to do it again. I'm like, well, they give you their word, but what work are they actually doing to make sure it doesn't happen? And just for clarity, when, when Neil's saying partner in this sense, he's actually referring to the addict or the person who's done the betrayal. Because Neil, we usually word, use the word partner as the one who has been betrayed the partner of the person who has done the betraying. Oh, interesting. And what do you call the other person? We usually say the addict and the partner. It gets a little tricky when the, when, when the person who's betrayed is actually not an addict, doesn't relate to that term. So then I'll say the person who's done the betrayal, which is a little bit long, but. So, so, uh, so the addict is the person who acted out. And I guess that takes away the, the that makes allow, allow someone not to take it personally. It's not about me. They're an addict. Yeah, exactly. The term, I'm just thinking through the terminology. I haven't actually use that terminology. And then the partner sort of is a very neutral term. I get that. I'll try to yeah, see what yeah. I can do. <laughs> okay. So you were just saying that for the addict, basically, who you were calling the partner originally, um, that it helps to take away some of the shame. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. I'm still, I'm still spinning the words around in my head because it's very interesting because say in other, it's so funny there. One thing that happens in the self-improvement journey is you learn from many different uh, experts and modalities. And it's easy to get confused because one thing will seem to contradict another. For example, in the PMLD work, the partner would be the love addict. 
So that would be the addict, right? And the other one would be the avoidant. Yes, exactly. And, and by the way, not only that with Pia, the word codependency means something very, very different than what it has meant in the sex addiction field historically. Co- codependency has been assigned to the partner who has been betrayed. Immediately, as soon as she comes in and says, I have been betrayed by my husband or my spouse or my partner, then she automatically is presumed to be codependent. Right. And so what, what, I, what, I, what I was going to say, and I've done this for people before, is it's easy on this journey to start learning different things and they're contradicting and either feel overwhelmed or feel like no one's saying the same thing. But if you actually graph it out, people choose different terms and different maybe places to demarcate a phase, but you can map them out exactly next to each other and the wisdom at the top of it is the same. And one of the reasons maybe I've been able to, to do that work and heal is I really accept uh, I just want to learn from the best that I don't freeze if things contradict or there's different terms. It's exciting to learn. So the point I was making, and I'll, use, I'll, I'll do my best to use the terminology, which is one is for the addict to recognize they are an addict and actually do the work versus just promising or giving their word. Yes. When, when somebody says, oh, they promise never to do it again, I'm like, well, what actual, what actual steps are they taking to look at the reason they did that and to, to, to pull that out by the roots? So otherwise it will likely recur over time. Then the second part is the addict does the work. They're in the process. They're, going, they're really committed to the healing, not just going through the motions to get somebody back, right? They're really committed to their own healing. And then the next thing is, is the person, the partner who suffered the betrayal trauma, can't, are they able to trust again? Because I've seen situations where one, the addict does the work, doesn't, is it doesn't, isn't doing the work. So mm-hmm. the relationship Fault, you know, ends as it, as it should, mm-hmm. uh, or B, the addict does the work, but the partner cannot get back to a place of trust. And they just feel at this point, and I've seen it happen at this point, they're like, I just have to, I'm just in the doghouse, whatever I do. It's been three years, four years. I'm mm-hmm. still in these meetings. I've done all these things. Mm-hmm. I've really, really healed. Uh, um, and, and I'm still being treated yeah. Treated this way. So I see both, it seems like both things almost have to occur. But you can break it down even further because in that, yeah, because in the category, <laughs> in the category of the partner who just can't forgive, even though he has been doing all of this work, there's still other scenarios. For instance, there were several relapses before he really started doing the work, or there were several times where he had, you know, not honored boundaries and had really not been doing the work. And then at the very end, realizing, oh my God, she's going to leave. Maybe then they really get it and they start working and sometimes it's it's too late right and that would fall into the first case that would fall into the first oh, case good the point. partner good point. the partner still they're going through the motions of the work but they're doing this and then have, it's also in a but what but there are many subtleties and subtleties and another one is is being in that is expecting just well i'm doing the work and give me complete forgiveness and mm-hmm. and uh, let me just do whatever i want and just trust me versus having right. to really slowly slowly earn that trust Absolutely. And Neil, something, I don't think you've listened to the podcast yet, but one of the, um, one of the episodes I interviewed Dr. Omar Manwala, who has created or developed a model, um, basically showing that, um, sex addiction is a, an, an, not just an intimacy disorder, but it's actually an integrity disorder. And so when I talk about sex addiction, I don't just refer to the acting out behavior as being what the partner has to forgive and be able to get over, right? There's also this associated pattern of behavior that accompanies the addiction. So in order to keep an addiction going for years and years, the addict has to lie and manipulate and deceive and gaslight. And, 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 a lot of that over time, it's really abusive. 
And so the partner, it's not for the partner. It's not just about, um, you have to get sober. It's you have to get sober from the behaviors, but you also have to be in recovery. You have to become someone who has integrity, who I can trust, who's not going to treat me and other people in these ways anymore. So I look at this as a two prong problem. A lot of clinicians look at it really just as the, the first, you know, just the acting out behavior itself. Right. Just thinking out loud about this and, and I haven't heard that podcast, but I like that term is that it seems to me that that addictions cause uh, addictions are so overpowering they cause people to act outside their value system and outside their integrity system. Correct. So to me, the integrity disorder almost seems like a symptom of the underlying issue. That's why it's so powerful to be acting out of inte- uh, to be acting out of integrity. And hundred uh, percent. But it seems to me that the integrity disorder piece of it comes apart as a symptom of the kind of underlying disorder. You're right. You're absolutely right. But then what you see is that when an addict is in recovery and doing the work, oftentimes the shame gets in the way of healing early on that integrity disorder. And what I mean by that is that um, an addict can be sober for a nice amount of time. Well, what's a nice amount of time, but let's say it's six six months to a year, right? Of good sobriety, but there's still a ton of shame. Then in recovery or sobriety, he might still be emotionally abusive or gaslight or deny or minimize or say things like, when are you going to get, when are you going to get over it? It's been X amount of time already or any of those things. So the integrity piece to me is, is a longer journey than getting sober. I think that's the harder piece for many partners. I, I think that people can get over the sexual betrayal easier than getting over the lies and the secrets and the manipulation and deception. Yeah, because you're not in a relationship. You thought you were in this relationship that you weren't. And again, it's that. Yes, it's that's why you call you. That's why you call it a betrayal trauma. It's all that added betrayal. They're like, when he was doing this, how could he? I mean, I just mm-hmm. sent someone I was talking to who just was still processing all those lies and uncovering them. I know people who five years later they're still investigating, finding more lies. And I love that. I don't know what term you use, but pain shopping. Mm-hmm. At one point, mm-hmm. the relationship is over, and it's sort of continuing to cause them pain and almost just looking for it versus just saying this did not serve me and I'm releasing it and healing. The relationship was over with the- uh, Oh with, yeah, with, with the person I'm talking about, that different, oh. yeah, that, that it, it's over. And just five years later, like they'll all of a sudden, they'll just be like blind, you know, they just sort of keep trying to find and all the lies and all the, all the deceits. Wow. Actually, it's interesting because I, I don't typically see that after. I feel that when, so I will say that most of my clients, the majority of the clients I see do repair and heal their relationships. There are absolutely cases where people do not repair. And I think you spoke to it at the very beginning of this discussion about why that would happen. You know, oftentimes if, right. if the person is not doing everything they can to heal the relationship and heal themselves, it's really not going to work. But I have seen people who have gotten to the point where they say, I have to leave. I have to leave for my, for my own mental well-being, right? For what's yeah. best for me and my family. And they have done a lot of healing already and definitely are not going and continuing to look and investigate and all of that. So that's, that's interesting. Maybe you should tell the person you were talking to, to listen to the podcast. Yes, I will. And, and, <laughs> and you know, but I, I was also thinking something that earlier that sort of, I would say, uh, slowed down my recovery was all the labeling. Like I felt like I walked in as a very, you know, in my mind, as a, as a very psychologically healthy, normal person who, who just uh, uh, made a sexual mistake, you know, right. in, the, in the throes of desire. That's what, that's what I thought. That's what I walked in thinking, you know? Um, and then all of a sudden I've got a, you know, intimate disorder and a sex addiction and betrayal trauma and anxiety disorder and depression. And like, I felt like I, I, I got so diagnosed 
that I that 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 it was that I just it was just like this is just crazy making. Well, I think that you're just like you're you're just like so many of my clients and the listeners who literally do get caught. They think they did something wrong. They acknowledge that, and they're they're like, okay, I'll just fix it. They never it, be, believed in a million years that their life was going to turn into you know a twelve step program and therapy and couples therapy and group therapy and workshops and and oh my god, I have trauma. Like I have to heal some trauma from my own past. Right, and and it wasn't about the work. It was about all the labeling that going from you know healthy normal individual to uh, to all the labels that we've just used, addict and, and uh, uh, you know, um, all those labels. Like, Sick. Yeah. Broken. Yeah. But not, not even, not, those are just adjectives. What okay, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. is the diagnoses, right? I see. You are a sex addict. You have an intimacy disorder. Mm-hmm. You have a integrity disorder. And then you take a bunch of tests and, you know, they, they text your mood and you're like, well, I'm depressed because you lost the, you threw away what you thought was the love of your life. So now you have depression. At least this was my experience <laughs> when I checked into, right. to, to, you know, and, and so I had depression and I had anxiety. So all of a sudden I was just so labeled with, with all these clinical things that it actually made me not want to be a part of that system if that makes sense. I absolutely understand that. And actually, before we continue, then let's, let's just segue back and, and start the discussion about you, because I feel like there's no real context yet. So, so why don't you start with just briefly your relationship with your partner at the time and, you know, where you guys were and then what happened and how did you end up getting into this world where, you know, you had a hard time with all the labels? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, and yeah, and, and this really turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to both of us. And I guess that's a good case scenario mm-hmm. that we would both agree. And just so you know, she's open to me talking about it and she's in the book and I've, and she's totally open to it just so I'm not to be clear, uh, including using her name, which is Ingrid. Uh, so I was dating Ingrid and, and uh, it, but it's, yeah, I was dating Ingrid. Uh, there was somebody who was sort of a mutual friend who I, who I was attracted to um, slept with them a couple times and then you know, I think what, yeah, so did that. And of course, of course, when you're cheating, it's all fine. It's only when you're caught that you realize you need to do the work. It's such an interesting thing that nobody has any issues. So they think. So the question that I, I'm just imagining a partner listening would, would, would likely have right now would be, um, so when you were actually, when you were sleeping with this mutual friend, you didn't have any guilt or shame or, you know, any thoughts about uh, Ingrid at the time? I think that I, let me. I've got to go back and think about it because it feels so long ago. Um, no, there was there was guilt. There was there was definitely like guilt. There was the guilt of having done it and the anxiety of getting caught. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying, but what I am saying is, having been now met probably hundreds of people on this journey, no one. I haven't met a single person who did it because they were doing it and felt shame and wanted to heal. I've only met people who got caught. Right. Me too. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. Which just speaks to that integrity piece you were talking about. Yes. I think I have, I, I should say that I've had probably three to four clients in all of the years I've been doing this, which has been, I think like uh, at least, at least a decade that I've been in this business that have come in without getting caught where they really did come in saying, I, I need to get this under control. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that's, so that's, but I mean, again, as you do the healing, you realize that the, that once you, once you break trust, once I, once I broke trust, like you're no longer in a relationship anymore, you're in your own world, you know? At the time that you cheated on Ingrid, did your sexual behavior with this other person have anything to do in your mind with how you felt about Ingrid? In, in my mind, it had nothing, no, it had nothing to do with how I felt about Ingrid. Right. 
in my mind. Yeah. Like it just, it had nothing, you know, and again, I think when afterward it was, I think it was really hard for her to accept that it really had nothing to do with her. Yeah. Um, I, 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 and I think partners, that's, that's probably the hardest thing for partners to understand because they say I could never do something because I would be thinking about my, my husband or my, my partner. Right. So how could you even do these things? How could you not think about me? Right. How could you do this and not think about me? What would you say to that? Yeah. I, I think, I think that they, they, it's so hard for them to not take it per like, am I not this enough? Am I not that enough? Uh, and, and, and I, it's interesting. I, I really think that people are responsible for their own behavior and it's almost, it's just not about, it's not about you and it's not all about you. Um, and obviously it's coming from underlying issues that they're ha- that they're having that just, if it's anything is about you, it's that you pick that person unconsciously. That's all that's right. about you. <laughs> right. Thank you. So, yeah. so, and it's interesting too, but so you asked how I felt afterward and how I felt is, oh shoot, I opened this door. Now, how do I peacefully close it without rupturing my relationship? That was really my thought. A, the sex wasn't even that good, right? The fantasy of it, that's one of the big things that I learned, let's say in the weaker moments later after the healing is like the fantasy is better than the reality of the mm-hmm. ab acting out. It, it, it wasn't that great an experience. And then the door was open. I'm like, okay, how can I, by the, the last times I saw that person, again, it was maybe four times or something like that, um, that I, uh, I, it was really just out of guilt to make sure they were happy right? Mm. Not even because I wanted to see them or do anything. I really felt like, I really felt afterward, shit, I should not have opened this door. Uh, And, and of course the door slammed in my face. (laughs) So what, yeah, tell us about that. What happened? Uh, So yeah, I think one day it was, it just got so that they were kind of, it just got on the, on the text. And again, I'm so happy they did. I'm so happy they did this. (laughs) Like, I'm really so happy. It's crazy to say that. Um, but, uh, you know, just got on the text where I was just always trying to appease them. Uh, and then appease your acting, appease, appease your acting, appease out, my partner. acting out partner. Right. So, uh, and, and eventually they decided that they would message Ingrid on Facebook and tell her everything. And I can't, I can try to remember where it was, but I remember when Ingrid called, I think, I think it was on a book tour in San Francisco. I remember, still remember Ingrid's call. And it's so interesting, you know, and I remember just kind of like collapsing on the ground, you know, like it's, it's almost like all the air got sucked out of me and like just uh, hit by a sledgehammer. Because it's interesting too, like I find that sometimes, again, I always valued her, but I do find a lot that people don't value their partners till they feel like they're about to lose them and they realize mm-hmm. that importance, mm-hmm. even when they're not acting out, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, I know someone who yeah. wanted, kept complaining about their uh girlfriend wanted nothing more than to break up with them. And then when that finally happened, tried to kill themselves. Wow. You know, I think you don't, and I'll tell you another side story, which is interesting. Uh, it's a friend of mine who used to sleep with a lot of women in relationships. That was his thing. And he said, he called it. Was he in a relationship too? He was not in a relationship. Okay. So he was single and he would sleep with women that were yes. in relationships. And he called it the 80, 20 rule, which was they're getting 80% of what they need from their partner and he'll be the 20% they're not getting. Wow, so he really justified what he was doing. <laughs> he really justified what he's doing. But, I, but here's the important, here's what's interesting. He said, the, 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 this affair would begin and then they want to leave their partner for him. And he said, I tell them not to do it because they ever did it. They'd realize they were stuck with only 20%. <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah. so uh, um, 
I forgot where I was going, where I was going with that, but I just, I just, I don't know. Well, you were talking, it start. you started talking about the conversation that you had when Ingrid called you to, to confront you. Oh yeah. When Ingrid called me. So, so, so yeah, I just remember and, and, and a four, you know, the first was denial, which lasted maybe 10 minutes. And then, you know, then it was minimization. Uh, and then she was very smart and was like, well, you did this and I'm never speaking to you again. Good for her, <laughs> right? That's a, that's a great response. And you guys weren't married. You were not married at the time and you did not have a child, correct? correct? We were not married. We did not have okay. a child. So it's like, this is done. Okay. I'm never speaking to you again. And I was just wrecked and and, and, and destroyed. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, then I just remember like spending a long time writing a letter to her. I, I'm trying to, I, it's hard to remember everything that happened, but the point being, mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a letter to her, you know, I think I uh, saw saw her uh, and I think I'm, I'm trying, it's hard, it's hard to remember, even though I wrote a whole book about it in my head somewhere else. I was just going to say, I really, yeah. I remember in the book, you actually really, um, you really detailed what happened. Yeah. And I can't remember a thing. Like people remember my books better than I do. Okay. So, okay. So then we don't need the details of that. Then what did you do? So you basically, you got caught, you got confronted. Your I think, I think, love of your life told yeah, you. I think, that I think, you I think not- what I, I think, I think ultimately we got back together and I said, I, I we, we, we kind of tenuously got back to, I said, I'm going to do the work uh, at a friend, um, at a friend who said, listen, if you acted outside, he said, you're a sex addict. And I said, why did he say you were a sex addict? Because he what? Because, well, think about it. You acted outside your value system. You threw away, like you wanted to get married to this person. You threw it away over sex you didn't even like or enjoy, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you hurt someone you care about. That to me sounds like a sex addict. You know, and I could probably have this, I think when I was really young, I saw a documentary on, on a, like one of those 60 minutes type of news shows on a sex addict. And it was this kind of schlubby guy and he had a pillow in his van and he'd drive around and pick up women and sleep with them in the back of his van every night. And I always thought that was what a sex addict was. But I remember being like, that guy's amazing. How does he do that? Like, I didn't think it was a wow. whole other thing. I was like, this guy's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other book. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole other book. So I always thought that like a sex addict was, uh, you know, because like that it was more like you're just, um, that, it, that it was something sort of seedy and, and uh, uh, that it was just. Or that you didn't look like that person. You didn't look like the guy with the pillow in his van. Right. Right. Yeah. Or in driving around, picking up people, having sex in right, a van, right? right? Or like flashing that's not people you. or like, you know, or sleeping with, uh, right. you know, prost- you know, again, these are different ways of, you know, sleeping with prostitutes every day, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. And then when I got to rehab, so, so I just said, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to go to rehab. I don't want to just have you take me back. I really want to find out why I would do this. Um, and, uh, and um, so, and she was supportive with me going, going there. So, so we did heal it up, but it was really, and it wasn't even conditional on me doing the work. I just really said, I really want to figure out why I would do this and why I would destroy my happiness, why I would harm you. I really want to know. And, and I think one of those key pieces is that I really, yes, I wanted to do it for the relationship, but I really want to do it for me. Like I, it's, as we were saying earlier, that guilt and shame didn't come until I got caught and I realized right. the full magnitude of it. I, we compartmentalize 
these mm-hmm. things. And I, t- I tell clients, if I get um, a male sex addict that comes into my office after recently being discovered by his, his wife or partner, and I say, what are you doing here? And he says, I, I just got caught, you know, acting out and I, um, I'm going to lose my wife. And she said that I have to be here, right? right? I, I have to come to therapy and I'll say, well, it sounds like you're, uh, you're motivated by this external you know, this, this external reason that's your motivation is, is your wife's going to leave you. And I'll, and you can start work with me under that, with that motivation. That's okay. But it's got to shift. If it doesn't shift to you wanting to be here for yourself and your own healing, then it's not going to work. And we're not going to have a lot. We're not, I I guarantee we're not going to be working together very long. Yeah. That's exactly it. Even I told her, you don't have to, you know, it's interesting because it's funny as I'm thinking about this, there's the book, you it's, I think it starts when I, there's so much so much detail that was really emotionally impactful to me that maybe I left out of the book because it just didn't belong in that narrative as I'm thinking about that. Uh, you know, I think I talked about the moment I got cheating, but I still remember the, writing that letter to her to, to try to get back, to try to reconnect um, all these little pieces that were so emotional, they coming back to me because I almost forgot about the rest of the narrative maybe that didn't make it in the book just because it didn't right. you know, belong in that story. It's really, really was heavy. Um, so, so, so I went to, so I went to rehab and I, here's the interesting point too. I mean, A, in rehab, I found out that every other guy there except for one had cheated on a, was there because they had just cheated on a, on a partner. Uh, everyone was married. Everyone had, uh, was there for a similar situations. So what I thought was a sex addict wasn't a sex addict. Only one person was there because of compulsive, uh, compulsive, compulsively sleeping with the prostitutes and then getting one pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that person identified as a sex addict. Uh, I mean, we all did by the end, I guess. Or I don't, yeah. Oh, okay. But it's interesting. I think one person there, I don't know. I always felt like he was more a marriage addict than a sex addict. <laughs> oh, really? In the, in the, se- in okay. the sense that, yes, he acted out, but, but really it was just the, it was really bent on fixing marriage that never worked for him. I always thought of it that way that yeah I was I was just thought of that way that really he was unhappy in the marriage from the beginning none of his needs would met there was no communication it was what they call a you know a parallel relationship to people living separate lives under one roof mm-hmm. and yeah. and uh, and I always felt again he had to deal with the acting out and the cheating but I but but uh but he was still fighting to make a marriage work that never met his needs. So I thought it was very interesting to let go of it. Did you talk about that in the book? Because that sounds really familiar to me. Okay. Yeah. And I just want to say, let's, before we continue with the story, I think this is important. We've, we've um, reflected on the book, mentioned the book several times. And so I imagine that people's immediate reaction might be to get the book. Um, I have some thoughts about about that, that I can share, but I'm also, <laughs> I, I also would love to know what you would suggest to both partners and addicts in terms of reading that book, because there is some really, you know, this is what I do for a living. And I even had moments where I was like, whoa. And I, I remember I said to you, I could not believe how honest you were. And I had so much respect for you being that honest. And I said to you, I don't think I could ever do that. Right. So this could be triggering is what I'm trying to say. What would, so what would you say to either a partner who is literally in a state of trauma because of her own experience with betrayal or to the addict who has done these things and does have a sex addiction and so can get triggered, you know, by certain things or, you know, some of your stories in there are a little bit titillating. Yeah. I mean, I, that said, that, that said, it wasn't why I wrote it. I think it's, I think it's good to read a story that's really, really a story because we A, we learn through metaphor and not through the sort of self-help points. I think it can help men really identify because what I was going to, uh, but as far as the book goes, I don't think it's a bad thing for both partners to get it and then sort of discuss it, but also to be aware that some parts are going to be triggering to the addict. 
uh, and potentially, believe it or not, to the partner, to the partners, as well. yeah, and to the partner as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, by, but 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 the, I think my thing would be just make sure you read it to the end. <laughs> yes, read it to the end for sure. And also, if you start reading the book, if you decide to get it and you start reading it and it becomes triggering, you don't have to force yourself to finish it. You can put it down, and you can also read this another time. Like you can say, "Oh, this sounds like an interesting book that I think I'd want to read," but I'm in such a state of trauma at the moment that this is probably not the best time for me to read this. Or here's here's or here's what I'd say is just read the first two parts. Like the first two parts are just about the parts in rehab. A lot of the philosophy is there. And then you can just read parts one, parts two, then the last part. <laughs> um, and not all the, right. all the okay. crazy stuff I did in, 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 in denial. But I do think those two parts have the, the core of the, of the psychological stuff. And again, I just haven't, I mean, I only write a book if I feel something hasn't been said and I, nothing was able to speak to me in a way I understood it before that. And I also find that guys who have read it said, oh, I'm glad you did all that stuff because now I feel like I don't have to. Wow. Because it ended up horrible. Wow. And okay, well, let's let's continue then in your story. I'm curious, can you share with um with our audience what you did in rehab? What were what were the things that you uncovered about yourself and the work that you did to help you, you know, become the person you are sure, today? But I want, yeah, and I want to make a bigger point, which is which is I didn't stay in rehab. I ultimately left rehab early. I ultimately I didn't get the lessons. I fought and denied right. it. So so like as Marty was saying earlier with a, with a, and, 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 and we broke up. She didn't stick with me while I was going through this. We, we, she made the right yeah, decision. Yeah, yes. So, so uh, it wasn't like, Oh, I went to rehab and, and I saw the truth. And then I did this work at this, this process, especially if we're talking about addiction, it is, it is a, uh, it, it's up and down and back and forth and relapses and a lot of denial. And it really took me years to, to, to years of years of work and counter work, let's say, to, to, to get here. And certainly I, I would have said no partner should have stayed with me during that as, 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 as Ingrid didn't like, I mm-hmm. will get to that in a second, but I do want to say that maybe it's a journey one takes alone. And if it's right, as it was with Ingrid and I, we meet on the, we met on the other side of it and that's probably healthy. Like we probably wouldn't have gotten together and had this amazing child if, uh, if, if we didn't separate. And mm-hmm. also, uh, so, so let's talk about, so the, here's what changed my life in rehab. And it's one of those moments that I'll never forget. And again, I'm there and they're giving me these, all these diagnoses and they're doing what I interpreted as a lot of sexual shaming. And, and I'm just like the rebel there and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And it just seems to me a lot of like, like they're just trying to like psychologically castrate us. That was my take on it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I, you know, I walk in this, you know, normal guy who cheated and now I'm this like, you know, now I'm like the most dysfunctional person in the, in the, in the world. Like, you know, like the, every chapter in the DSM is me somehow. So, <laughs> but then we had to do what's called a timeline. And, and it's funny too, cause I've been in therapy and stuff and you've never, I love rehab. I'm a big fan of rehab. I'm a big fan of addiction recovery because it has to work because lives are at stake. So in other words, say that yes. again. So with other forms of therapy or walking into therapy, it's, they do their best, but addiction therapy is like, um, is uh, lives are at stake. If that person takes another drink, you know, they could in their, esoph- their esophagus, uh, you know, could explode or their liver could give out. If that person shoots another, you know, shoots up again, they could overdose, right? Even, even with sexual addiction, that person could, could get a disease or something could happen that, that it, it, you could, so lives are at stake with addiction therapy. So they just do what works. And I think it's the cutting edge of therapy. So even if you don't identify as an addict, 
going to rehab to deal with big trauma is the greatest thing. I, I really think addiction therapy is at the cutting edge of everything. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I was going to, I was just thinking, thank you for saying that it's rare. You know, I don't know that I hear that very often. I think that, you know, the clients are in so much pain and duress when they're in, you know, in an acute state of trauma when they're working that I think a lot of times, to be honest, they feel that the, the system fails them, like a lot of the rehabs or the therapists. And um, so it's really just nice right. to hear you say that. It's nice to hear you from now from an objective place, be able to look back and say that that's what you believe. And here's, here's why that is, I think. And I'd be curious for your thoughts, which is this is a lifetime of, let's say, of reinforced trauma and reinforced trauma reactions that, that one has lived for decades. So it's really deep, deep in the brain. Um, so to, cha to change, it, like a four-week program is not going to do it. A four-week program, like a weekend workshop, a four-week program, it's just not going to undo all that, like especially when you return to your environment. And so if you, the truth is, if I could design the perfect world, like rehab would be a year. Stay with me for you. you will, you'll be, when you're done, you'll never go back. But no, oh, no one could afford that time-wise or money-wise. So I think to get someone to go four or five or six weeks, which is what, what most of them are, seem reasonable. But like, it is not enough. It's not enough. Correct. And that's why there's such high relapse rates and people kind of get cynical. So you really, it really takes more than that. And if you, if you think of going there, it has to be thought of the first step, not the solution, I think. Thank you for saying that. I think that that's so true. Like patience is so important in this journey. And it's not something that, you know, a lot of partners or addicts have. It's like, this hurts too much. I'm in too much pain. This is, this is awful. And get me out of it as soon as possible. Yeah. And also too, I often find whether it's with addiction or just a behavior a partner doesn't like when one partner says they want to fix it, the other person uh, holds them to a standard that's, you know, it feels like, oh, you slipped or backslid, whether it's and we're not talking about, oh, you cheated. We're just talking about, oh, you promised never to do X or Y or Z again. And you did it. I'm upset and, they, and, and I feel angered and betrayed. I think it's important too, as one partner is healing, the other person just allows and accepts that journey as long as proper boundaries are kept as far as integrity and, uh, you, know, you know, around integrity and uh, let's say mm -hmm. behavior that's non, not violating boundaries. Yeah. In other words, if you're in a relationship, if you choose to stay in a relationship with somebody who has an integrity disorder, right? An intimacy disorder and has cheated, um, then it's important to recognize from the beginning that this person is not going to heal overnight, that it's going to take a lot of time and there's going to be mistakes. There's not going to be perfection. And so if you, you know, if you need perfection or you can't, you've been in so much pain and you've hurt so much that that's literally what you require in order to stay, then likely it's, probably not the best thing to stay because I've never seen an addict come into recovery and, and change overnight. Yeah. Again, they might get sober overnight, but it's going to take a long time to do that deep dive that you were just talking about. And you about. can decide on what your boundaries are. For example, I have a friend who mm -hmm. was dating somebody who, who, uh, who had a, and she had an anger, let's say an anger, anger issues, right? And mm -hmm. she's working on it. But at one point he had to do the bottom line, which is if you strike me again, there'll be no questions asked. I'll just leave. Right. Mm -hmm. In other words, right. yes, that will happen to her, but you don't have to stay around while they're doing it. And guess what? Nothing, we have this thing that things are final. When I marry someone, it's forever. We want it to be that way. When I leave someone, it's forever. The, every moment you get to make a new decision. So I think it was, again, maybe I'm talking from my experience, but someone truly left, left emotionally and physically whilst I did the work and I didn't do the work for them. And then later it was right. It's okay 
to leave to protect yourself, you should never abandon yourself while someone's doing the work. No, it's the right thing to do. You have to take care of yourself first. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so the moment that changed my life, going back to that, I really, we got a tangent because there's so much to talk about. It's such a rich topic, but I'll, I'll never, so I was in there and I was really against everything. And I had to do a timeline, which is you, I, you know, write down all the highly impactful events in your first 17 or 18 years. And so I sit there and I'm embarrassed because what happens is you start trauma comparing <laughs> with other people. And I think my trauma is so small to compare to everybody else's. And so I read off all my things and, 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 and the therapist. You read it, you read it to a group? To a group. You're it's it the to group, a group and the therapist. therapist. Yeah, the therapist mm-hmm. who I really is this like nurse ratchet from, you know, one floor of the cuckoo's nest type in my mind. And I really don't, don't like that person at all. And, and uh, um, at one point, uh, so, so uh, when I'm done, they go, I think they said, uh, it's out of curiosity. Is your, is your mother, when you bring girlfriends home, has your mother ever approved your girlfriends? I'm like, no, she never likes them. And then she takes a beat. And again, I'm trying to remember this correctly. It's more accurate in the book, but she takes a beat and then she says, but this part, I remember like, I'll never forget it. She goes, well, you know, why well, you've never been in a, in a healthy relationship. I'm like, no, why? And she goes, well, because your mother wants to be in a relationship with you. When they said that, I felt like this cold wind blow over me. And all of a sudden, like, I just, felt the chills, like I went into an altered state. And, and all of a sudden, all the events of my past, just like a puzzle snapped together from, you know, from really early age to now, and it all made sense. And it all made sense. And they said, and then she said, well, there's a name for that. I'm like, what's that name? And she goes, you know, emotional incest, which was such a shocking term. It actually took me out of it because it was one of those crazy diagnoses. Once I understood it, right. I saw that, yes, my mom had a horrible relationship with my dad. And I was always there to console her and to tell her about the problems. And there was all this control. And all of a sudden, everything up in my timeline fit into this pattern. And I unconsciously recognized it when she said it before I was able to consciously see that. And that was the moment when I'm like, oh, I, I just, I'll never forget it. I really, like, it was, it, it was the craziest thing. And, and we, I thought my childhood was normal. And I remember when a different therapist said, like, this is one of the most, you know, narcissistic parents we've ever come across. And you, and so to bring it back, you went to rehab because you thought you got caught cheating. Like that was the reason, right? You didn't go to rehab thinking you were going to discover why you've not had healthy relationships and that you had a narcissistic mother and that you'd experienced trauma. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I thought, well, I had a sex addict and I'll go there and like deal with the addiction. I don't know what that meant and do the 12 step right. programs and, and do what it is and just sort of surrender. I just thought it's, I said, I'd surrender the process. I didn't really surrender. And I think the moment that that uh, third enmeshment is the word for it. Uh, some call it enmeshment, engulfment, emotional incest. Uh, and then that was, the, and that I really key that to the moment of life changed. Like I saw everything. Like, okay, this is why literally when Ingrid would like hug me, I'd get creepy crawly feelings inside. She just hugged me out of love and I'd yeah. feel like, oh my God, I got to get away because I was being suffocated again by neediness. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so it's so, that that moment, it's so interesting because, and I find it over and over again, we live, we live, there's, we live in our childhoods and we don't know anything else for 17 years. It just seems normal. It just seems normal. Totally. Whatever it is, Ingrid too. She's like, well, of course my mom like hit me, beat me through ashtrays at me because everyone does that in Mexico, <laughs> right? All the parents do that in Mexico. We have all these forms of, it just seems normal because we don't know anything else. And it's a term I love that, uh, that Pia Melody uses called 
post-induction therapy. We had talked about that when we first met. And yeah. and the theory and I did the, and that was the next big life moment was this this therapeutic process called post-induction therapy. Uh, but the theory behind it is your childhood is a hypnotic induction. And the point of therapy is to unhypnotize you from this cult that brainwashed you right. for 18 years. Isn't that an amazing way to think about it? Yeah. I love yeah. it. I love that. I think it's because it's it's powerful and people often really do not understand what is at the base of their addiction. Why are they behaving in, in this way? Why are they hurting the people they love the most? Why are they acting against all of their values and beliefs and continuing to do this despite all of these negative consequences? Yeah, there's that great young quote, which is probably my favorite quote ever, which is like, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we'll call it fate. Love that. Quote. It's so good, and like, and this was the first thing that allowed me to see. There's a reason for the behaviors I've been having, and that reason mm-hmm. is because they were programmed into me. You know, inadvertently, they were programmed into me, and and now I have the opportunity as an adult to run a virus scan on myself, you know, <laughs> and debug it, debug myself, so I can actually have healthy relationships. That's amazing to hear. So before we wrap up this, this part, I do want to ask, what is it like for you to talk about that? Like what emotions are you feeling now looking back on all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've done so many interviews about this, but never with someone who's, who a is a professional therapist as you are, uh, who I can talk to on this level. So usually I'm just spending 10 minutes explaining what enmeshment is or, or, or something right, right. Uh, and really going on the surface. And this is shockingly, even though the book came out, I don't know, five years ago or something, this is like probably the most emotional I felt during an interview because so the emotions I'm feeling are like definitely some sadness, sadness for like mm-hmm. sadness for a little Neil, right? The young Neil who, who survived that. Mm-hmm. Sadness for 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 Ingrid and 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 kind of what she experienced. Uh, so yeah, sadness and pain, but also some like joy and excitement because I wouldn't be who I am today and know what I know today. I literally feel that if I didn't have this epiphany and all the things that we'll discuss in this part two that came after it, mm-hmm. I would I would just be living in the, in the, in the dark with a pen like. Yeah, that's um, that's why I asked the question because um, when you talked about. When you just said that you feel sad for that little Neil, I was thinking, so you went through life not having that kind of compassion for little Neil, right? Up until that moment when you realized, oh my God, my mother, you know, I, I was emotionally incested by my mother. You didn't have any, you know, nurturing or love or caring for that little boy. In fact, that little boy was, was abandoned by you yes. as an adult. Yes, that, that, I think that, that's, that's exactly it. And then to be- so, so sad. Yeah, and, to, and we'll talk about that reparenting later, but to be able to do that, it's just so, yeah, it's so powerful. And again, he like, yeah, it was, yeah, continually abandoned, like just, I totally agree. And and when that, that pit, the post-induction therapy, like really uh, restored that connection between me, big Neil or whatever, and little Neil. By the way, the reason that I did um, the post-induction therapy training with PMLD originally, I did that in 2010. And then I did her subsequent, all of her subsequent trainings after that was because I was a certified sex addiction therapist and I was able to get guys sober 
you know, they would get sober. There was so much I didn't know. You know, at that point, I didn't know about the um, integrity disorder. I didn't, there was just so much I didn't know. And a friend really strongly urged me to do the, the PIT training, the post-induction therapy training. And then I felt like, oh my God, now I have the other piece that I need to be able to help, right? Like I have all the tools to help somebody get sober, but now this reparenting, you know, all of the reparenting tools, that's, that's the way to long-term health yeah. and growth, right? Yeah. Like that's the real anecdote to sex addiction. Yeah. And I remember that part too, when I did that, when I did that, that, that process that Marnie's talking about, which is usually like a two or two to five day process, depending on where you do it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, I remember at the end of it, I call it like an exorcism of your childhood demons at the, at the end of it, I felt who I was for the first time in my life. Like it literally just with all the trauma and the baggage and the darkness and the false beliefs and the adaptive behaviors just lifted off momentarily. Right. It just was like the clouds parted and I saw who I am and I felt for the first time present and in the moment I, I had no idea. And then the goal of the work after there was to get back to that place. Cause often, like we said, these workshops help you get there, but they can't keep you there usually. And I think that what I would want our listeners to hear who are men who have acted out and have been, you know, in a similar place to where you were, you know, it's obviously different circumstances, but the bottom line is the same, right? They ended up really um, betraying themselves and the person that means the most to them. I want, I, I want you to all listen and hear what Neil just said, you know, that he found himself, you know, it was in the healing process in the seeking recovery and maybe even just seeking to repair this relationship you know, a lot of people, again, just start with that. I just want to repair my relationship. I don't want to lose my family. And then they get this great gift, which is ultimately of getting themselves. Exactly. That, that's exactly, that's exactly. And that's what we say, you're doing the work for you, not for that goal of getting back with your partner or making them happy or, or, or yeah. what, what have you. And I think that's it. I think really there's also a lot of humility. It's, it's, it just would save a lot of time. It would have saved me, I guess we'll end on this. It would have saved me a lot of time and we'll continue later. It would have saved me a lot of time mm-hmm. if I could recognize my denial and just with people asking what's the biggest thing you need for change and it's humility, which is just to surrender to the, to say, okay, like I could pick apart Patrick Carnes and CSATs and this, you know, addict partner for, I could pick this apart all day intellectually. And you do a great job at <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> they, you know, like you can look, look at the world right now. People can justify any belief right now or behavior or science with science even. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so to really like to change ultimately it, it, the number one trait is just humility. If you just really surrender to the process and surrender in a connected way, not in a disconnected way, that's just say, well, they're experts. They know what they're doing. It's not going to hurt me. Let me really just go in and turn off my, turn off my, Turn, turn off the thinking that got me here in the first place. Right. Well, listen, I can talk to you truly when I, when I, I don't know forever, but definitely for like, I can go and, and be somewhere with you for like a month and talk about this stuff every yeah. day. But, um, but I want to give our listeners um, a break to kind of integrate this and um, metabolize it a bit. And then we're going to come back. You and I will talk and um, determine when we can see each other again. Um, and before I go, I do want to say that if you guys are considering reading the book, I imagine that after hearing a lot of these things, it would be very, um, you know, it would make a lot of sense to be like, I'm going to go order this book. I want to read it. I want to see how it ends. 
Um, my suggestion is before you do that, at least wait for the second part and also talk about it with your therapist, you know, uh, talk about it with someone who knows you well, because I have met um, both partners and addicts who have read this book and have found it incredibly helpful. And then I have talked to people that read it probably too soon and felt not that it, not that they didn't appreciate the book, but that they were not ready for that and that it, it was very triggering for them. So um, don't make that decision now, please wait. Um, and, and again, after the second part, you can talk to people that you trust and make a determination about whether it'll be the right time for you. So Neil, thank you for being here. I am so glad we finally did this. And I'm not waiting until after the quarantine to schedule the hey, second let's do it soon part. While we're, while we're in the flow, let's do it in the next week or two. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna text you after we finish and we can hopefully try to fix something, figure something out. Yeah. And I don't know if I've just I just, you know, speaking of those, I've seen a lot of those listening are are on either side of this betrayal and and I think I, I think just whatever it is, it's just an excuse to do your own work. You know, I think to let go whatever your partner does or doesn't do is kind of up to them. And and mm-hmm. it's just such a, you know, and, and just use this as a as a reason to really do your own work and become a better person. The outcome really, the outcome is never about being with or not with your partner. In my mind, the outcome really is being with yourself. Yes, yes, yes. Because only through being with yourself can you be with your partner. Yeah, or any partner or a partner or the right person or any for you. Partner. There's a, there's that great saying I always have, with, uh, I guess the saying is mine, but whatever, but, but it's a probably a common <laughs> idea, but, but the outcome is not the outcome that the, these things that seem like the worst thing in the world, two or three years later, maybe the best thing to have ever happened to you. So, so yeah. feeling like there's a finality to leaving or finality to staying or finality to having to, whatever it is, like you really don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, uh, and, and um, yeah, I really, I really think if you let go of the outcome, you really just do, I always say too, it's not an intellectual or rational decision about staying with your partner. If you do the work and you keep healing, you'll actually get to see who they are and you'll know right mm-hmm. away, right? As you raise your level yeah. of emotional intelligence, as you, you know, uh, recover your functional delts, if you use that terminology and really uh, uh, keep, keep uh, raising uh, and healing, You'll actually just look at your partner. You won't have to think about it. You'll know who they are. You don't know if it's right for you or not. So the fact is the easiest way to make a decision is to keep growing yourself. Right. So I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway from this is um, for somebody who's still struggling with with betrayal, you know, and sex addiction, do the work. Don't do the work for your partner, although that's going to be a really great gift and ultimately will help. Do the work for yourself. Great. Thank you. Do the work for yourself. Yeah. Thank you, Neil. I'm really, I just had, I had so much fun talking yeah. to you and um, I always do. And hopefully we'll be able to talk again real soon. All right. Thanks, Marty. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. We will include links to Neil Strauss's book in the show notes. Just click on the episode and uh, we will put all the links there and that's at helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are getting a lot out of the Helping Couples Heal podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or write us a review. That really does help get us a lot of exposure so that other people who are out there struggling can find the podcast and get the support they need. So we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And also a reminder that if you would like more support, 
think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in Helping Couples Heal and click join, agree to the group rules, and there's a lot of extra support there as well. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and we will talk to you on the next episode.